Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, I have a window of a time here, so I'm going to use it even though it's earlier in the week. But uh, this week I see, <coughs> excuse me, this week I see is the barbell. That's one you can't resist. Uh, it's like a barbell who um, I don't think most people really like understand, you know. Um, it's out there, they're barbell, but very few people you know, comprehend it or get into it, I think, I think, all I have is my opinion. Um, the Barbadol is one of the big rabbis, but not of the regular variety. We don't know exactly how to classify him. He lived in the 1400s, uh, like in the 1430s, and remember he died around 1510, 15-8, something like that. So he was a guy who lived approximately 70 years old, you know, something like that. And most of his life in the 1400s, in the 15th century, in other words, in Portugal and Spain and Italy, in other words, in crazy places, because uh, these are the Sephardim, the Jews in Spain and Portugal. Um, when he lived in Portugal, it was a very small community. Later, it got bigger under crazy circumstances after the Inquisition, but the Abarbanel was born, I think, in 1437, I think. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you can look it up. And um, here you have a interesting background because uh, Spain was a crazy place for Jews in the 1400s. Um, they used to have it, w- w- at the risk of oversimplifying, but after all, it's a podcast, we always oversimplify. Um, the Jews used to have it relatively good in Spain. When I say Spain, there was no country called Spain. You had the peninsula, what the Iberian Peninsula, which at that time had like a half a dozen kingdoms in 1430s. You had the Kingdom of Castile, the Kingdom of Aragon, the Kingdom of Navarre, that's three. Of course, you had the, what we call the Kingdom of Portugal, that's four. The Arabs still had a Chalix, that's the Kingdom of Granada, that's five. And maybe there's one or two, I forgot. Maybe it's five. Anyhow, the Jews were living all over these places. Now, for a long time, they had it good, relatively. And then in 1391, not 1492, the Barbana lives exactly between 1391 and 1492. Uh, spontaneous riots broke out all over Spain. It's a long story, but the short answer is uh, they were fed up with the Jews, the mobs, and uh, started on Easter, and by the time it's over, half the Jews in Spain converted. I'm sure I've spoken about it before. Yeah, we did the rebush, yeah, right, a couple weeks ago. So all about the rebush, just cause that over. So that means that the Jews of Spain found themselves in a terrible situation between 1391 and 1492. For the first 30 years from 1491 to approximately, uh, I mean, 1391 to approximately 1421. I know you don't have to remember the dates, but I'm just giving you a general idea. Uh, it was open season on the Jews. You could go and just force somebody to convert or kill them. And that's why 50% of the Jews in the Iberian Peninsula converted. That's what they say. Uh, many died. After 1421, things got back more to normal. But then you left a, ser- a, a weird situation. 
half the Jews have now been forcibly converted, excuse me, but the other half have not. So I could be in one place, and by luck of the dice, or if you prefer, divine providence, I was not in a place ever where a mob came and forced me, but my brother, my wife, my cousin, my kids, anything could be in the wrong place at the wrong time, and it could have been jumped by a Christian mob some of some form or another, and forcibly converted. And once they were converted, the Catholic Church said, even though Bediyev, Chavchila was the wrong thing to do, because he can't do conversion by onus, but Bediyev, it accounts, without going through all the details of Catholic law. That's the bottom line. And so all these Jews, half the country, found themselves compelled to remain a Christian. So that's the Moranos. You know? Well, no, it's not the Moranos. Most of them made up, and they said, listen, this is the way it is, Isaiah gave us, and we're now going to be Christian. And they did. They're called the, the New Christians, or the Conversos. Uh, very few. Some, some kept up a secret Yiddishkeit. A lot of them did a syncretism, which is, you know, you're not the most religious Catholic, you're not the most religious Jew. Every once in a while you show up at the church, every once in a while you show up at the synagogue. Especially if your family has a bar mitzvah, or a chasana, or something like that. You know, a birthday party the non-Jewish relatives will show up because from the ethnic point of view, they're all Jewish. The Catholic Church didn't like all this, and this is the world in which the Barbanel was born. His family uh, left uh, Castile, where the main riots were, and went to Portugal, I think around 1400, something like that. And listen closely, here comes the point I want to get across. Uh, they were from the upper 1% of the Jewish population. Most of the Jews were persecuted, poor, you know, downtrodden and all that stuff. But 1% was rich and did well, and he's from that 1%. So the Barbanel is going to be an aristocratic Jew. Their yichas, they claim, goes from Dovin and and all that, so beside whether it's real or not. But that's how they felt. Isaiah, they say, you know, they were millionaires, and uh, they understood the world of business, and they understood the world of uh, culture, and they also understood that to succeed as a from Jew in the Geisha world of the 1400s in the Iberian Peninsula, you need to use a modern terminology, term derecher, it's a term motto, something like that, something like that. And therefore, um, these are people who uh, gravitated towards, first of all, Portugal was a country that had an amazing economy in the 1400s, that's their golden years. Por the Portugal, uh, remember you learned in high school Vasco da Gama and Prince Henry the Navigator, the Portuguese are the ones who discovered the world. Um, they just made one mistake. They turned down a guy named Columbus. I'm serious. He went first to the Portuguese. They let me go on an expedition. They didn't give it to us. He gave it to Spain. Boy, did the Portuguese not forgive themselves. But besides Columbus, the Portuguese um, were sailed around the world in order to bypass the middleman. See, the main stuff they wanted to import was from China, India, those places into Europe. But you had to go through the Muslims, through the Turkish Empire and so forth. They pay a lot of money. Is some from a strictly purely capitalistic point of view, if I can go by ships around Africa and around the Indian Ocean and sail to India or to China or whoever somewhere in Asia, then I can bypass the Muslim middleman and I make the profit. And that's what the Portuguese did. They set up a whole international series of trading posts around the world. Remember Hong Kong? There's Macau. Macau's right next to Hong Kong. It goes back to those years. So it's crazy where the Portuguese are all over the place. And that's how they facilitated an extraordinarily uh, economically successful century. 
So naturally, a Jew from running away from Castile or whatever, even not running away, says, that's a place I want to be because that's where the money's going to go. And so, to use modern terminology, they're investing in the new technology of the 15th century. And they did well. So here's the father of the Barbanel. The Robin's name was Yitzhak. This is his father. I think his father was Shmuel, I believe. Or something like that, or Yehuda. It doesn't matter. Uh, so the father uh, makes himself available to the royal court. The court is interested in him, obviously, not despite the fact that he's Jewish, not because he's Jewish, because he's got the money. But more importantly, he's got the business smarts. So the king and the nobles and the elders say like this, they say, invest our money for us. So it's like today, you'll say, I know you're very good at stock market and investments, all the rest of it, please be my guy. And uh, that's what he did. And his son was born into that context in 1437, 30, 35, whatever. And therefore, uh, he's not the regular Jew. He lives in the lap of luxury. But the parents were smart. The father was smart. He said, I... Um, in order to survive and do well, uh, but not lose the game by my son converting. So I want to give him, as they say, an excellent education in Limudikoshim and Limudikol. Limudikoshim and Limudikol, as a member of the upper class. And so here's a boy growing up in Lisbon. Uh, I know they always talk about the, our barber not being a Spanish, but the truth of the matter is he spent the, the first half of his life, more than half, in Portugal until um, he was like 46, 47. So... Uh, you know, that's really who he was, an Elizabeth type guy. When there weren't many Jews in Portugal, he grew up wealthy. His father gave him, as they say before, excellent Hebrew tutors. So he learned Gemara and all that kind of stuff, no question about it. But he also gave him what in Spain was considered a good from Moscilic education. Dictuk, Tanakh, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, Jewish history, whatever, whatever, whatever. I mean, poetry, you know, linguistic studies things like that, that you wouldn't just find in some yeshivasha uh, background. Now, I say again, he had Rebam teach him, uh, you know, Gemarashi Tosis also, no question about it. You know, Rishonim. But uh, he's at the very end of the Rishonim, beginning early Achronim period, 1400s. So he had an excellent Torah education, but he also had an excellent uh, Portuguese education. You know what I mean? Uh, English, math, science, and social studies, to use the American terminology. You know, rhetoric and logic and uh, this, that, the other, the the classics of the Western canon. Uh, he, matter of fact, he was very smart. He was brilliant. Otherwise, we wouldn't have heard of him. And so he has a very good education in philosophy, uh, Christian philosophy, Muslim philosophy, Greek philosophy. You know, highly educated. Very unusual guy. However, at the same time, the father's taking him into the business. So by the time the kid's, uh, what shall I say, in his teens, he knows money in a way that I don't and most of you don't, right? I mean, this is a Fortune 500 company we're talking about, and I'm, I'm, not, fun, I'm not kidding when I say that. And so he understands the bond market of the 15th century, what was equivalent to that, the trade routes, the necessity of running a business by being highly organized that I've referred to occasionally with some of the rabbis I've been talking about, not usually. Uh, the necessity of writing a lot and keeping records and staying in contact with the latest news and having commercial agents all over the world and finding out Vastutzach in the Philippines, you know, uh, all in the 15th century, you know, in, the, in, in India and places like that. Uh, meaning knowing, how's a, I hate to use it, I don't hate to, but I'll just say it like this, it's a combination of Lakewood and Wall Street. And yeah, that's the best way I can put it. You don't find too many famous Rabbonim in there. Now, he never was a rabbi. He never was an out or anything like that. Why should he be? The guy's got a real life. 
And when he grew up, he's born 1430, so imagine him growing in 1440s, 1450s. That's when he's already in his 20s. That time, Portugal really had a golden age. Uh, they had that King Alfonso the Fourth, no, Alfonso the Fifth, and he was there for forty years, something like that. And he was good to the Jews, and he was good to the Jews that that were a benefit to him. So he was a good patron with the Barbadell family. I don't know any rabbi like this, you know, that we usually associate with the Mafarshim or you know the Rajma, the Rosh, the Rashi, Tosas, those type of people, the 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 Radak, you know, none of those people at all had the background of the Barbadell, who's a real aristocrat. This is a guy who hobnobs with, uh, you know, the the princes of the court, uh, the high machers, the officers of the government, the dukes, the princes. Uh, now, they, they, they hobnob with him because he's a multimillionaire. So, in other words, he can, his family, they own a palace. And they really did. And, you know, if they threw a party or something like that, which obviously they're throwing, if you, if you, you're, if you run in those circles for business purposes, you throw parties. Agreed? You know? Uh, it's not because they really love them. Anybody loves each other. It's all about money. But okay, Rashi didn't do that. You know, when the Rambam didn't do that. Uh, Cairo certainly didn't do that. Here's a guy that's highly cosmopolitan by the standards of that time. He has non-Jewish friends. I mean, that is really re- uh, uh, unusual. Uh, and he's highly intellectual. I remember when he was like a teenager, he already wrote a couple of philosophical tracts. But in Hebrew, he can he's, he, he had an excellent Moscow education. And so his Ivrit is wonderful. And it's a pleasure to read the Barbanel from the point of view of reading Hebrew. Um, and when his father died, he took over with the king and the princes. And uh, obviously, like I said before, he was the Wall Street wizard of that time. And uh, at the same time, the person I'm talking about is from. And, uh, you know, we don't have anything really from him in Gemara learning, but you can tell from his writings he knew that stuff. And there's no question that a guy like I'm talking about, who's a Jewish intellectual, as well as a non a, 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 a secular intellectual, uh, he had shiurim in his house, or he gave classes, or things like that. Chugim, uh, he, he, you know, he didn't shoot the bull, he hobnobbed with whatever passed for Talmud Chum over there. Uh, you know, they like to talk in learning, whether it's Torah Shabbat, Torah Shabbat Pep, a philosophy, Maimonidean controversies, you know, he's got opinions on everything. I would throw in one more piece. At the time of the 15th century, where you have this crazy situation that I described a couple weeks ago, so I won't cause it over. Uh, so Judaism was under a constant um, intellectual assault by Christianity, uh, which culminated, of course, in the expulsion of Jews in 1492 and from Portugal in 1497. Now, intellectual assault means you're always being hit by these missionaries, right and left, or not missionaries. Every Tom, Dick, and, and Pedro thinks it's his job to uh, convert the Jews he knows. So there's not the slightest question that he and his contemporaries had to be up on their Bible in order to for him for the missionaries. You understand? Uh, now, if you're a Barbanel, you, that's not just, you know, you learn a few uh, acute lines. You learn the Tanakh, turn the Vim cold, so you can mamish wipe the floor with these guys. That's the tradition he comes from. He's the leading from the aristocratic group. He's the richest. They're the high guys, and they're not typical of the rich Spanish-Portuguese Jews of the 1400s, many of whom went off the derrick. That was usually the way it went. Power corrupts, and over and over again, they either became, uh, as we would say today, conservative Judaism, they didn't believe anymore, or they converted. That's often, often, often what happened. 
But there's a few that it didn't happen. And the Barbanel's out, the outstanding representative of the few, didn't happen. He really pulled off the Torah model. He really did. And when I say Torah, the emphasis in that world is not going to be in Gomorrah. Now, he knew it, but the emphasis of it is going to be Tanakh, because you have to be able very thoroughly, if you want to do it right, to wipe the floor with anybody as a missionary. So I can just imagine, you know, the Barbanel would be at some royal occasion at the court, or at some banquet or at the party, I don't know, whatever. Not they went to trade banquets, but you know, some social occasion. And a guy will say to him, he said, Well, what do you do with this? This is Pusik and Zachariah. Boom, boom, boom. He can give him the answer, you know, uh, and, and, and crush him. Now, I don't like to say it that way because it sounds too, uh, you know, like art scrolly. But nevertheless, I'm trying to convey uh, a social reality, an intellectual reality, a theological reality which wasn't characteristic of many of the Rabbanim who lived in a very closed world, uh, uh, deliberately so, they lived in the world of, uh, of uh, voluntary cultural insularity to the degree possible. The Barbanel, you know, had to be out there, and he had to do with the government and kings and things like that. Uh, you have to understand that 1400s, 1500s, didn't have the Wall Street exactly. And so the court, the government, is like heavily involved in the economy, and so the big bucks is in is in uh, government bond issues, as we'd say today, in government loans, in um, you know financing wars and things of that nature. Because that's where the uh, large money is. Even to this day, I don't know of any com- a company that's ever done well without government contracts, despite all the capitalist talk that they give. Private enterprise really they always want government contracts because you're talking about huge amounts of money. It was the same thing in the 15th century. So this is who the guy was, and. Um, Therefore, you can be sure, uh, you know, I'm, I bet you somebody said like this, what does it mean to tower above all? It's a, a, clearly a reference to Jesus or something, I don't know, something like that. Just make it up. And I'm sure that Barbanel would then get together with a couple of his friends and uh, people, the uh, fellow intellectuals in Lisbon and say, what's Takab Shat with the uh, tower above all? Like, what's going on over there? Let's remind that suga. So obviously it's not nothing to do with Jesus, but what's Taka going on there so we can explain it to him uh, if, if the necessity comes up and force him to say that that's the shot. Which means I'm talking about a guy who under the forge of harsh circumstances has to become the king of Peshat. And that's who that Barabinot will become when he writes his commentaries. Mr. Peshat. Uh, that's not so popular in the front world. Uh, and I'm not saying every one of the shots are so great. But he's always focused on the shot. That doesn't mean that he's not interested or rejects uh, Drash Remez Sod. Not true at all. In fact, uh, the Bible, not believe it or not, even though he says he's not a Kabbalist, really is. If you ever read his writings, you know he he cleverly hides it. But um, when he writes on the Tanakh, he wants to know what's the Peshat, and uh, that's the Jewish answer. That's the only answer you can give. By the way, Peshat's not easy. Pshat means like this. I didn't say literal. Pshat means what is the meaning of the words or the passage or the story. You know, uh, God said, let there be light. Well, that's literally means God talked like I'm talking to you right now with a voice. Well, God doesn't have a voice. So what's the meaning? What's the Peshat? You understand? Not the philosophical allegory. That's good too. Not this interpretation, not the Kabbalistic stuff. That's good too. All those are great. But I'm talking about what's the Peshat? And uh, as I said before, by inclination, by historical context and circumstance, he became the guy who had to give the shot. And uh, as always, most 
from intellectuals were into Gemara, so they weren't able to handle that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, he kind of fell, fell on his shoulders. Now, everything was going great until it didn't. It's a classic story of Jews. He was in Portugal, and as long as this king Alfonso was alive, everything was great. But then Alfonso eventually died, the next king took over, and without going to too much Portuguese politics, the new king perceived that the Barbara was on the wrong side of some kind of a fight. Even though, it's, I think it wasn't true, but I don't know. You know, wrote all about this? The, uh, the father of Bibi, Netanyahu, long ago, he wrote a whole uh, dissertation on this. Not that great, but it's okay. If you, I don't think anybody listening is really interested in the internal uh, intrigues and politics of Portugal in the middle 1400s. But the Barbara was right in the middle of it, and um, his close friend, the Duke of Braganza, whatever, after all that, got up. It was like a Henry VIII situation. He arrested all the nobles, started chopping off their heads. And the Barbanel says that he was going on his way to, to, to the palace. He had no idea what's going on. And somebody said, if you don't leave the country this second, they're going to chop your head off, baby. And he was smart enough to get on a horse and hit the road right then and there. And he rode all the way from Portugal to the Spanish border, the border of Castile. And he got out of there. And I don't know how he got his family out. The king was angry that he escaped. He said, you can make a movie of this. You know, I know it sounds funny. I say it all the time. The Abarbanel is definitely a miniseries. And uh, just the Israeli TV too stupid to do. They probably do no kind of narrative. You could do from Jewish history some really interesting things. But then again, they probably screw it up and put a love story or something. But if you were faithful to the facts, you could make some miniseries called the Abarbanel. Anyway, he got out and he got his family out, but he couldn't get his money out. The king took all of his money, uh, which means he lost his fortune. So here's a guy who was living in lap of luxury, all the rest of it, and then not. He also lost his library, which you can imagine a guy like that uh, assembled a choice, exquisite library, uh, uh, Torah library. And uh, he had to start life anew. He ran away to a new country, to Castile. He went to Toledo, which was a big, uh, and still is a big city in central Spain, in, the, in another country. So he was out of the reach of the king of Portugal. But what do you do now? And the guy was like 45 years old. Until he was 45 or 46 or something like that, he had a life of a certain sort. And then he did not. So for a person who lived 70 years, more than, way more than half of it was in Portugal under very uh, luxurious circumstances. Uh, you know, uh, he, he could afford all the books he wanted. He, he could give Shiorim. He had a grape. But then he didn't. Now, the type of person I'm talking about, even if circumstances cause you to lose your fortune, you could start again on Wall Street. Agreed? You just need a little bit. You could start again on Wall Street. Because you got the smarts. You could start again in the business world. Because you got the smarts, the knowledge you have. The rare knowledge of arbitrage, of um, moving vast amount of money uh, around the banking system of the 15th century, and the, internationally speaking, there really was a thing like that. Very primitive, but nevertheless was there. Government loans. I mean, this is knowledge the average guy does not have. But he came to Spain, he was like a, all discombobulated and got his family together. I think most of them, maybe one son remained behind. And he said, uh, he's like, uh, what shall I say? He's like in a shock and he didn't recover. And I think he took it, a very from guy, so he took it as a Yad Hashem. And he said, you know, Sheker Achein Vehevel Yofi, and forget the money. And that's when he started writing commentaries on Tanakh. And he knocked off. Uh, this is like uh, almost a euphoria, manic, you know. Uh, he knocked him, Yeshua Shoftim Shemuel Malachim. No, Yeshua Shoftim Shemuel. 
I remember he, he says he knocked off the whole Yoshua in like two weeks. And the whole Shoftim, I don't know, in a month. And the whole Shmuel Al, Shmuel Beis, again in a month or two, something like that. Which means he had all this stuff in him, but he never had time to sit down and write because the guy's running a business 24-7. That's the high finance. And now God has deprived him of all this. And when you have not, when, when, you, when you, have, you lost your business and you're quote-unquote unemployed, uh, then you have time to sit down and learn and write all this amazing stuff that you had in your head. And remember, this is a very organized person. This is a very thoughtful person, uh, very widely erudite, you know, learned in, in a lot of di- disciplines. So he's going to bring a unique approach among the Mepharshim to uh, his commentaries on on the on the Bible, and as he put it very famously, <laughs> When you're broke, then you start learning or you start you start publishing. Uh, again, this was right after the printing press. I don't think he published. He might have, but uh, these are early works. It says Yeshua, Shoftim, and Shmuel. He was going to do Malachim. He says this. He says I was going to write Malachim, uh, which he would love because he knew kings. He's the only Rishon, you know, that knows kings. And uh, then he got an offer from the king and queen of Castile, or the king and queen of Spain. The queen was Isabella, and the king was Ferdinand. Ferdinand was the king of Aragon. He married Isabella, the queen. It's the middle of 1480s. They already been married for a couple of years. By the way, the Inquisition has been established, but the Inquisition can't touch him because he's not a Jew who ever converted. I told you before with the Rivash, the Inquisition can only uh, had the legal power over people who were conversos who they or their ancestors had converted to Christianity and now they don't want to practice Christianity. But if you were from the lucky Jews who never converted to Christianity, you have the right at that time to practice your religion. And there was a rich Jew, Abraham Senor, uh, from that 1% class, who uh, was high muckamuck with the uh, Ferdinand Isabella. He was a close financial advisor for Ferdinand Isabella, Queen Isabella especially. And he was a nice guy. He said, I, kn- I know this guy, Barbanel, and he obviously fell out with the King of Portugal, you got a walking financial genius over here, you know. You want to take advantage of it. And so the king and queen invited him uh, to, to give him an offer, a government job, to be in charge of the IRS, to farm the taxes, as they call them that time. And that means you have to organize, because the, the governments that time didn't want to set up an IRS. as too much of a pachka. What they did was they take a person, in this case a Jew, and say, you set up people in every town, every place, and you collect the taxes that we uh, order. And uh, that means they had high respect by his reputation for his organization skills, for his honesty, for his uh, ability to uh, keep uh, paperwork flowing, uh, to make sure the money comes in on time. That's, let, let me tell you something. A refugee who arrives penniless to be offered to be the head of the IRS, of course, he takes a piece. Um, you know, that speaks volumes, doesn't it? By anti-Semitic rulers, that speaks volumes. But Lamaisi was only in Spain for nine years. He came there in 1493, he got the job in 1483, he got the job in 1484, and as you know, 1492, the Jews already kicked out. So what's actually going on is, in these years, Ferdinand and Isabella are launching a war to complete the Reconquista, as they call it, the Reconquest of Spain. The Muslims still held the Granada, a part of the southeastern Spain, and there was a long series of wars to totally conquer every square inch of the Muslim area, so that every square inch of Spain uh, will be Christian, and they did succeed in 1492. So that means, if you're talking about 1480s and early 1490s, government contracts, army contracts, supply of uh, weapons, three meals a day, uniforms, you know, you get the picture, right? Um, Sieges, artillery, you know, 
who, where do you get the money? And where do you get the, the stuff from? You know, who's, who's the person that does it? And so it's a one-man show. So him and this other Gabriel Senor, they ran the financial side and the logis not only the financial, the logistical side of these wars. And uh, that's the end of his writing any commentaries because now he's got a secular life again. Uh, he obviously was, by his personality, background, and knowledge, instantly a member of the elite, such as was left in Spain of the Talmud Chachamim. Um, there's a famous uh, story, you know, later on the Barbara got controversial because he said David and Elchsin with Bathsheba. And uh, there's a couple other people like that also. And uh, uh, he has a couple other controversial things here and there. And I remember I was in there Israel many years ago. I must have told you this. And somebody said, I, somebody went to Rabbi Rudim and said, you know, you should take the Barbara out of here. And he said, no, you can't say that because the Beis Yosef calls him a Nesher Agaro. So that means that the firm world holds of him. And that's a reference to somewhere in Hilchas Brachos. It's not necessarily what you think. Uh, these, the Yosef Kara in the, in the Kesset Mission on the Rambam, in Hilchas Brachos somewhere, where they have that business about uh, what I call soup nuts. You know, uh, if you take bread and put it in the soup, and is it called, a, you know, is it a mozi, is it a all that stuff. Does it have this it's very controversial, you know. Does it have the shape of the bread still after it's mushed around? Or does it have the Torah, Alechem, all that stuff? A lot of different opinions on this business. And uh, ultimately, you're talking about something which is not really so much a matter of super lumdus. You're talking about a question of what do we, like in America, call this stuff today? Will we call it a Mazonas? Will we call it a Motsi? You get what I'm saying? It's a matter of how you classify something. Um, I'm oversimplifying, but that's what it is. It's an Elchus Brachus in the Rama, I forget where. And uh, the Kesset Mishnah says, there's this Shita, this Shita, how it goes. And, you know, if you look in Shulchan there are more. And there was a meeting uh, by Ravitzak uh, Al-Fasi, not the, not the riff, of course. And uh, it was a question whether there was a mistake in the Rambam's reading, I think, something like that. And he said, oh, there was a big, uh, uh, like, like we would say today, the Moises Gadola Terry got together. Not exactly, but, you know, a lot of big rabbis got together and discussed this. And there was also Hanesher Hagorol Ravitzak Barbanel. So, Rabbi Rudin was like, I guess, you see, if the Beis Yosef calls him such a Hanesher Agadol, the great eagle, you see, they all held from him, so don't criticize the Barbanel. You know, so there are things you could say that he says, we don't hold of, that's a different story. But on the other hand, you know, leave him alone. And, uh, you know, he's, he's like an early Akron. Anyway, uh, as we all know, this whole, so he started becoming a millionaire again. But then the whole thing came to a crash, because in 1492, for various reasons that had nothing to do with the Barbanel, the Jews were kicked out of Spain. Basically, once they used them up, they threw them out. Once they conquered Granada and all of Spain was now uh, part of uh, uh, the Christian area, so uh, there was nothing to talk about. And um, the result is that even though there are many dramatic stories, the Barbanel himself gives a dramatic story. I don't know if it's exactly true. The historians discuss that. But the bottom line is he tried to persuade them not to do it, but they did it, and all the Jews were kicked out of Spain, as you know, including he himself, and he ran away to Italy. So here's a person who lives to be around 70 or 75, even more like 70, and uh, figure 40, 45 years or so in Portugal and about nine years in, uh, in Spain, and the rest of his life in Italy.
So that's another uh, 16 years. This lived in three places. When he came to Italy, again, he lost all the money back in Spain. Uh, matter of fact, the kings of Spain, they got really uh, disgusting, and they sent to Italy to arrest him and take his money and all this kind of stuff, but it didn't happen. reason it happened is because he landed in Naples. Naples was a separate country. There was no country called Italy at that time. It was broken up a bunch of different countries. This is uh, the era of the Borgias. And uh, the king of Naples at that time, without Ferdinand, without, without getting all the details, uh, said, oh, here's a brilliant, uh, like I say, Wall Street guy. <laughs> you take over my investments. Uh, you know, advise me how to run the uh, the financial side of the country. And uh, so the barber landed on his feet again. But he was in a shock, as you can understand. Because first of all, he got kicked out of Portugal. Now he got kicked out of more dramatically out of Spain. And one of his kids was kidnapped, and I think they wouldn't let him go, if I remember correctly. The Inquisition, you know, raised him as a Christian. You know, they played hardball. And uh, it was a real bummer. And so he was under a bad, uh, you know, mental state. And, you know, he's... But now that he recovered, see, he... He reacted the same way. He said, I get better, better get back to the learning. I get back to the learning. And then he wrote a whole bunch of other books. Uh, uh, I don't remember exactly which ones, but in the other parts of the Tanakh, you know. Uh, I remember now, uh, this way he wrote in Daniel, for example, because the whole book of Daniel is taught about the final Messianic era, and he was one of those who was who was, was convinced Mashiach is about to come, uh, you know, because what happened in Spain is like the Gogomogog. You know, which I can hear from their perspective. And he explains the whole story of the Daniel. In that, you get a, a history of, of the terrors that the Moranos went through. Uh, he also writes that, by the way, in the, on the Tokacha. Uh He's a good writer, very dramatic writer also. And uh, he saw himself as being in the Messianic uh, generation, which is why he writes books on Mashiach time. Uh, Yeshua Smalko and uh, I forget the names of the others. Miflos Elkin. When I did the art school years ago, I did Sanhedrin. What was it called? Perkhalik. There are parts about Mashiach over there. And at that time, that's when I said, all right, I got to go through all the barbell. That's when I plowed through. They're not, they're kind of turgidly written. Uh, and they deal with all these different Gemaras and Psukim in which the Gaim say this and here's what we answered and back. You know, it was written in that sort of form. Uh, and it's, it's just kind of interesting in that regard. I think the Lubavitch quotes him. He talks about whether Mashiach come from, you know, the Gemara talks about the Mashiach come from the living, from the dead, and all that. Uh, and so he has there at, at, at some length. Uh, so this would be the, the kind of books he writes there. But then he got, again, a third blow in life. Because if you know anything about the Renaissance period, the Renaissance kind of, in the foreign policy, reaches a, a crescendo or nadir with the French invasion of Naples in 1497 very famous, terrible episode. And the French army came and destroyed everything, and he had to run away from them. He ran away with the king, and he ran his way to another part of Italy, and again, he lost all his books. And I remember he, he hung out uh, near Calabria, you know, as far, far away from the front as he could be. I just recall one thing. At one point over there, he, he lands on the island of Corfu, and he, which is in the Adriatic. It's not far from where I'm talking about. And he went to a flea market, in the flea market, he found something he wrote 50 years before, whatever, his commentary on Dvarim, that he thought that the king of Portugal had burned or something like that, way back when, when he ran from Portugal. And he was always bitter over it. And this is like a tris amazing. How it got to the flea market in Corfu, who can imagine? And he was like, this is a sign from God, you know, and I better sit down and finish up my writings. 
And so um, as a refugee in Calabria and, and you know, Naples and, and, and Sicily and, you know, always running away from some army or another, really, in those years, uh, and therefore he's not making the money, uh, now he must have had basic parnosa, and he had rich Jewish friends in Italy, so maybe they helped him out. He was friends, good friends, with the richest Jew in Italy, Yechil Nassim de Pisa, who was the uh, rich banker up in the Florence area in Pisa. Uh, they've been friends when they were both rich, and I'm fairly sure that now that he was down and out, the rich guy must have helped him. Uh, whatever the case is, now he had time on his hands, and he knocked off, you know, Yeshai, Yermi, Echeskel, Treyosar, all this business, you know, like, like that. And eventually the Chumash stuff. And uh, therefore, whenever whenever uh, you see he had bad moment in life, that's where he wrote his famous commentaries. But they're not in order. He's not one of these guys that had the luxury to say, I'm sitting down starting with Bracious, and once I finish Bracious, I go to Shmos, and after I finish this, I do Nevi'im, and after I finish the do Ksuvim. No, it's a screwball situation. Uh, in the middle of all this, he was consult. He was dealing with like Mashiach books, and there were also books about uh, you know theological issues. The Yud Gim Lekrim of the Rambam. You know he helped him. Then hold of it. Uh, he has a commentary, for example, on the Marinavuchim. Uh, by the way, even though he has all the secular education, he's a frummy. He's like a right winger, not a left winger, in his general hashkafas. He just is not your typical right winger. He has an enormous education, and then he ended up moving to Venice. Venice didn't like Jews, but they liked this kind of Jew. And the government, which is anti-Semitic, nevertheless recognized this Jew was good for the economy. And for the Venetians, it's all about bucks. And uh, therefore, they let him live there. And they actually got him to negotiate uh, a treaty with Portugal over the spice. You know, how they divide up between the Venetians and the Portuguese the spice trade. Because the Venetians are importing it through the Muslim territories. And the other guys are doing it by driving or sailing around them. So it's a highly complex business. And that means he was treated, uh, you know, uh, with a certain courtesy. But again, even though you're conducting these negotiations, it's not like today. You had time on your hands. And that's where he wrote the rest of his stuff. Maybe in the Chumash. I don't remember exactly. Uh, and then he died over there in Venice in 1508, I guess. But there's such mamzerim, they wouldn't let him be buried there. I remember he had to be buried in Padua. So he took, because Padua had a, a from community. And Padua was... Um, uh, what he called the head yeshiva, and so he's buried in the Jewish cemetery Padua. But it's very famous. Not long afterwards, like a year later, there was a war right there near Padua between the Holy League, one of those Italian wars, and the Jewish cemetery was destroyed. So we we know he's buried there, but there's no nobody knows where anymore. It's like a shame. So his only kever are his books, but the Abraham wrote many farm. Oh my goodness, the hour is late, and I'm just starting to scratch the surface. I'll I'll put in two three minutes. Because I want to keep, otherwise I'll be here for an hour. Uh, the Abarbanel is, when I was young, I didn't pay no attention to Abarbanel. And I'm sure you don't either. It's a, a many famous jokes. He's so long, become not from because read the question, not the answer. But after all the jokes are over, the Abarbanel is, uh, because of his education and his passion, he brings a high literary quality to all the writings. And I'll just tell you one or two points, even though this is, should be a speech for an hour and a half. First of all, the Abarbanel is a Gavaldic, a cheater book. If you want any subject out there that's been discussed, uh, you know what's the meaning of Shechina? What's the story with Adam and Eve? What's the idea of Bracious? What's the idea, I don't know, of the mitzvahs? All the rest of it. One of the things he does, he has a little intro all the time, and he says like this, the Rambam says it in this way, the Ralbog says it that way, 
The Gemara says it another way. Here's the explanation of, I don't know, uh, you know, uh, with the Radak. Here's what this one says. Here's Chazdei Kreskis. And he's excellent synthesizer. So the average person can't read Chazdei Kreskis. Take it from me. But if you read his Kitzer, oh, that's what Chazdei Kreskis is saying. Or the average person can't understand the, um, what do you call it? The Gersonides, you know, the Ralbog and these kind of medieval, uh, what shall I say, uh, philosophy books, or the Murnavuchim. And he will either bring you the, the part you need to know or synthesize it. So even today, I'll tell you right now, if you ever are Ma'ayin in a Sugi in Tanakh, Tanakh, Tornuing Subim, and you want to digest of everybody up to his time, he was in the, he wrote in 1500, uh, notice you want to digest of all the Rishonim, you look there, uh, just off the top of my head. You know, what was the sin of Moshe? And uh, Barbara said, well, there are 16 <laughs> opinions. One's the Gemara here, one's the Sifra, one's the this, one's that. You know, here's the Ramam's opinion, all the rest of it. You know, he's very erudite. This was a late medieval kind of way of writing. But for you and I, it's actually very, very good because it comes out of an excellent cheater book. Then, everything is always the questions. You know, they, they recently came out with a JPS edition in English of the old Mikris Gedolos, which is not bad. It's not from, but it's not bad. And every uh, Parsha... They give you, it's in English, a Barbados questions. You know, one or two of them, because he always says a bunch. And just to give you an idea of what I'm talking about, since we're looking at Noach this week, I'm just reading, show you, simple but direct, it's a shot. The question number one, since the Torah has already described the line of Noach in the previous Parsha, why must the information be repeated here? Eil told us Noach. Noach is and Shloshabana. We just said it in Parsha Brations. And why was verse 12 which means corrupt. It already said in the previous passage, These are sharp questions. You understand? What does it mean? When God saw God can see everything. He knows it before it's going to happen. So what do you mean he saw it? All these are just, I, you know, I, they're just like push shot questions. And he's the king of that. You take it all through the Chumash. Take us all through the Tanakh. But you and I mostly in the Chumash. So, um, do Parsha of the Week. You open the Barbanel and read just a few of his questions. I know the jokes about it, but seriously. You read a few of his questions, and you say, you know, it's a good, 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 good question. Now, he offers his own interpretations. And sometimes, I find them a little bit weird. But that's, you know, you can find it with any Pirish. Uh, you know, he's writing his time, seeing from his, his perspective. One thing he does do... Uh, it really is late, so I'm going to have to close it down in a minute. i got to go somewhere. One thing he does do is he brings a, a wealth of knowledge of what everybody's saying in the subject, and Havayas de Alma, he knows the world, he knows politics. Like, for example, when he discusses whether or not it's a mitzvah to have a king, you know, when the Jewish people asked Shaul, I told you this a couple weeks ago, uh, you know, when they asked for a, for a king in the time of Shmuel and Navi, and Hashem says it's a bad idea, I, it's a mitzvah to have a king, the Bible also like this, the whole idea of a king is a bit of it, because the king is like one of the worst forms of government. Why? He knows. He dealt with kings, you know? Rashi didn't deal with kings. Tosa didn't deal with kings. The Rambam didn't really deal with kings. Not really. You know, the Ramban didn't really deal with kings. This guy, Barmanel, he was there in the palace every day. You know, he saw him. He saw Henry VIII up front, as, as we'd say today, uh, and behind the scenes. See, he knows that a king, as he puts it, will squeeze you like an orange and then throw you away. Uh, it's total selfish. So uh, he brings that perspective that you won't find anywhere else. And uh, this is one of the things that makes his commentaries interesting. He is very original, and uh, every once in a while, if I have the time or the occasion, 
I'll go into one of his uh, little disquisitions there. I think I did it last in in Shmos about what the Shechina is and what's the uh, you know the meaning of the or in the Mishkan or something like that. And he goes to great length. Uh, you know, you can like it, you can dislike it. I mean, that's everybody's uh, has a different reaction. But he's very thorough, very thorough. And therefore, all those who were cheater books after him, like Menashe ben Israel in the 1600s, they usually quote verbatim at great length from their Barbano, because their Barbano did all the spade work for you. So you can sit there like a fool and do all the work yourself, original work to find out who said what about whom, or you can open their Barbano, he does, he brings you up to date what all the Rishonim have to say on the subject. Rishonim who are um, Bali Halacham, Rishonim who are philosophers. Uh, by the way, he brings Christians also, because he knew... You know, because he's always finding the missionaries, he's got to know all the Christian stuff. And he knows all the Christian stuff. The church fathers, the missionaries, and all the others. Uh, and so, some people didn't like the fact that he quotes the Christians, but he didn't care. He said, I guess, listen, let's see what Derbshot is. He's not afraid to say, if I like Derbshot better than a Jewish one. That happens very rarely, but once in a while. All of which makes the Abarbanel definitely not the normal type. Uh, it's not for everybody, perhaps. But I think um, it's a treasure that's out there that nobody really knows. It's under your nose. And what's interesting to me is very recently I see the Ozva Hudder or those types. I believe it's Ozva Hudder just put out brand new. They're in the process of putting a brand new fancy schmancy edition to kind of revive the Barbell and the Yeshiva world. I wonder where it's going to go because the average guy in Israel, if he's going to buy this, he's going to go for a couple of shocks over there if he's from Yushalayim or B'nai Brock. But on the other hand, a lot of people find... Uh, uh, very interesting things. Oh my goodness, 45 minutes. Goodbye. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.